Hello, everybody, and welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. This is a recovery podcast where we talk about all things recovery. Uh, we have many different guests that come on uh, that are recovering from many different types of uh, symptoms, such as alcoholism, addiction, uh, food, porn, sex, um, and you know mental health disorders. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Joe Jobrani. Uh, welcome to the corner, Joe. It is a pleasure to be here, Fez. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And uh, Joe, we're going to be talking a lot about opiates, opiate addiction, methadone addiction, suboxone, uh, as well as you know harm reduction. I know that you're very well versed and very well experienced in all of these uh, areas. Uh, first, we want to delve into your past a little bit. Where were you born? Where were you raised? And tell us a little bit about that. I was actually born in a suburb of San Francisco, uh, Marin County, and um, raised there until I was around 12. And then um, I moved to L.A. and my dad um, trepidatiously went back to Iran uh, before then. He, uh, This is after the Ayatollah had passed away. So... He went back to Iran to try to reclaim his assets. Mm -hmm. And so it was um, just uh, my mom uh, who would actually go and come, um, my grandpa, uh, my brother, and myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so growing up, you know, how, how was it growing up in America uh, as a youngster? So, so growing up as a youngster in America, you know, one of the things that's, that, uh, that we were discussing, uh, Pej, was, you know, our, our, uh, the Persian culture's propensity uh, to use opium. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, for me, always you know, viewed in a rich, and I don't want to romanticize it. Uh, it's a, you know, it's an addictive drug. It's, it's not a, um, a good thing at all. Um, and, uh, however, uh, it was, it was very romanticized, um, as a four or five year old looking on, um, to, you know, a group of, your family and guests and them passing around this magic pipe, you know, that you had no idea what it was, but, um, but would occur. And so, uh, as a, as a young person, I knew of the word opium, but it was never, um, you know, uh, there was the Nancy Reagan, you know, stop, just say no. And, uh, you know, all they would always uh, cover drugs and opium was not one of them. You know, heroin was, cocaine was in the classroom setting, you know, um, as kids. I never, and so I remember um, I was in London and I went and I went to the library there. Um, university library, and I, I must have been nine or ten, just mm. to uh, look up opium. And I remember just putting in opium to to find a book, and the the screen filled up, and I was so amazed that this thing that I thought was unique to Persians was in fact a very, you know, important crop. Um, and so, uh, how is it important? How is it important? Well, why, why was it an important crop? The opium poppy is where, um, the majority of, um, a substance called the bane is, um, extracted, which is then, uh, converted into the painkillers that we, uh, we use today in modern medicine, um, such as oxycodone, which is uh, why they call it semi-synthetic. Um, you have morphine, which comes from the opium poppy, as well as codeine. Um, 
but it's primarily through the th uh, Thebane source that um, that uh, the painkillers are developed, um, be it morphine, hydromorphone, um, hydrocodone, oxymorphone, um, and the list goes on. Um, and it's an extremely important crop. As a matter of fact, in World War II, um, the um, allies had cut the supply of opium to Germany. And this, sir, this was a, a big deal because Ger German soldiers needed, you know, pain relief. And um, that's uh, that's when methadone was discovered and developed and and utilized um, initially because of of that because of the allies cutting off um, allies meaning the British the Russians and the United States cutting off opium supplies to Germany. Okay, so interestingly enough, obviously because I I too grew up in as an Iranian, Persian-Iranian uh, man, both in Orange County and Los Angeles, California. Um, my first encounter with opium was actually at a Grateful Dead show, and it was, uh, I bought it through an, a hippie, and um, they told me, this is real opium, this is not sopium. I'm like, what's sopium? They said, sopium's fake opium. A lot of people will try to sell that stuff, and they the way that this individual was showing me how you use it was he was smoking it. And, um, and I tried to smoke it and I didn't really get much out of it. I thought like, what is this? Maybe this is sopium. And he's just, you know, trying to sell me some fake shit because I was very much into hallucinogens during that time, very much into marijuana drinking, hadn't really got into heavy, heavy uh, stimulants yet. Although stimulants became a friend of mine, but I wasn't, really fond of whatever it made me feel like. Now, uh, down the line throughout my early 20s, I do remember recalling uh, being turned back on to heroin uh, by some, it was with some Latino guys. They were, we were in the process of doing a transaction. It was a, a drug transaction. They thought I was Latino. If they'd have found out I wasn't, they probably would have had other words with me. But um it's not that they forced me to do heroin with them, but they pretty much left it up to me. They said, if you're not proud of your heritage, which I guess to them, to be a person that's uh, proud of your heritage, you have to really be smoking that chiva. So they, they put it in front of me and, and gave me no choice but to do it. And I remember doing it and tasting it. This was heroin. Yeah. It was black tar heroin, tasting it and thinking to myself, mind you, I was on a meth bender during that time too, but tasting it and thinking, wow. Like uh, this has a peculiar taste, a peculiar smell. I can kind of see and a, and a feeling to it too, where I could kind of see why people like this stuff. Um, however, you know, I only went on to do that for a short time with those people until, and then I stopped, you know, uh, I stopped doing it because I was more into stimulants for a while. But by the time I was in my mid twenties, mm -hmm. I had cousins that lived in LA off of Melrose and, I would go to their house and everybody was doing different types of drugs. But I remember like I, I did more ecstasy, more stimulants, more hallucinogens, things that were the party drugs, uh, the rave drugs and things like that. We were having a lot of fun with that stuff. But I remember I had some cousins that started getting into straight opium from the old country, Iranian right. opium that was right. like that was transported uh, illegally, obviously, from there to here. There was various methods that uh, older Iranian men were able to bring this stuff over. They would call them lulz. They were like, you know, they were basically a certain measurement of the amount of opium that they were selling. And they would sometimes bring them in Persian carpet carpets that were they were transporting from Iran to America rolled up inside of like this certain part where you couldn't, where it wasn't really checked by customs or maybe it was overlooked or whatever. So um, <clears throat> I remember going there and having my cousin at the time who was very much into this i remember he it, he was big on having an electric stove he was big on having a device that bubbled and had water in it and and then obviously two wires and and there was a ritual to to the way that he would do opium same with the rest of my cousins my yeah. cousin mojijun god rest her soul she's no longer with us but she was there 
we were all of us, all of us were. And, and so I remember like telling my cousin, Hey, like, I don't, I don't know what's up with this. Like when I'm doing it, I'm not feeling like what I think I'm supposed to be feeling. And mm -hmm. he'd say, Pej, like, you don't understand. Like, this isn't a weed high. It's not a head high. It's a body right. high. Right. This is a body high. And I was like, what? Like, why? I don't even get it. Give me more of that. And I'm like, you know, I kept trying it and trying it. And then like, I found myself there every single day for the next six months. Give me more of that. Give me more of that. I don't feel it. Give me more of that. Wow. Give me more of that. And it was to the point where my addiction was starting to build. And I knew like deep down inside, like I'm, I'm becoming very dependent upon this stuff. So right. I, I, I mean, I knew, right. Like th this is, sure. this is something that I'm really going after, really starting to want more and more of it. And over a period of time, it, it was, I was part of the ritual. We would have the chocolate and the, and the chai, the tea and, right. and, and sit around a, uh, you know, on, at a certain table uh, in a certain way. And there was just certain parts of the day that we would just be hitting this stuff. Right. right. And, um, and then it, I remember I called one day, I called my cousin cause I went back down to orange County and I couldn't come back to LA for a little while. I was sick as a dog. I'm talking like, I just, I didn't, I knew nothing about withdrawals. I knew nothing about, uh, the dependency that I had for it. I remember calling him and he said, he told me like in Farsi, which means you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're withdrawing. Right. I'm like, what does that even mean? Uh, he goes, Motad I'm like, what does Motad mean? He said, you become yeah. addicted to it. Right. Yeah. It means to become addicted. And then um, he said, how are you feeling? I said, I'm, I'm throwing up. I'm shivering. I'm yeah. sweating. And I'm next to the toilet. Uh, just, I don't want to go anywhere, right? It was the worst sickness I had ever felt in my life. And yeah. and I just remember telling him, like, I don't ever want to do this again in my life. This sucks. Like, I, my bones hurt all throughout my legs. Uh, you know, it was like I'd never in encountered such a excruciatingly emotional, physical pain as I did that. So right. that was... And I decided from there on, I'm never going to do this again. Knew nothing about detox, knew nothing about getting cleaned up. So, so that was the last time that I ever put opiates in my body, right? Um, however, over a period of time, I did start getting into finding dirty doctors and getting Oxy-80s and selling them to people that I knew that would shoot heroin and shoot Oxy-80s. And, and so like, I knew like there was to be able to have these types of opiates around for me, it wasn't the only type of advantage that it was, was that I could sell it to people so that I could have more money so I could do meth. Right. That's, yeah. So I want to know from you personal experience, uh, you know, you were going to, you were in school in New York to become a physician. You wanted to become a medical physician, correct? Yes, that's right. And how old were you when that was? Um, I was 30. This was, uh, Towards the end of it, that I was thirty-six. I would okay. Say. Now, how old were you when you had done the research on on opium and opiates? Like ten. Ten. ten yeah. So between ten and thirty-six, had you ever started using any type of opiate? So I, um, uh, my uh, undergraduate, my uh, major one of them was in uh, biological psychology which um uh, psychopharmacology is a big part of of the major itself um meaning we would um go through and study all of the available um drugs um history of drugs the present drugs being prescribed why they were prescribed the receptors that they would bind to etc and i had it in my head that i was going to try um everything that i studied why uh, why just out of sheer curiosity and there were there were many times when we would be studying substances that weren't even out yet um and I would call, and uh, I'm referring to something, uh, uh, a drug called Meridia, which was Sabutramine, which was for weight loss. And mm -hmm. this hadn't even come out yet, but we were studying it. And um, I 
went out and was looking for and they're like, well, you know, it hasn't even come out yet, you know? Um, and then I um, also tried opium. Um, you know, it was something that was uh, readily available, um, you know, uh, that I can, that I could uh, access um, and uh, like, like how you shared, um, I got the same feeling where I'm like, this isn't doing it for me because I was um, used to uh, smoking uh, marijuana occasionally. Uh, again, this is all uh, when I was an undergraduate. And I was expecting that, you know, that uh, the, the, the effects and high that marijuana would produce. Um, but, um, you know, it, it wasn't doing it. And um, it's interesting because I then did a presentation on um, my partner did um, uh, heroin and I did um, uh, methadone. And we uh, presented, you know, and I went to the methadone clinic and um, spoke with someone there and kind of interviewed them and um, found out that it's really easy to get methadone too. Um, and I wanted to try it, um, simply put. And so for, uh, you know, for some time I was, um, while I was there in Santa Barbara, um, trying methadone, using methadone um, recreationally. Wait, wait, back up for a sec. Yeah. People recreationally use methadone? Um, it can be used recreationally for an individual who's coming in who's not tolerant to opioids. Um, I felt that first... Uh, uh, dosage that they gave me, which was 40 milligrams, which is what they start at. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to OD because I felt like it was so much. Um, but, um, but absolutely. And, 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 you know, also individuals who are, um, individuals who are, uh, uh, abstinent from opioids in general, um, if you were to give them buprenorphine, they would um, feel euphoria. And so all of these substances have a euphorogenic effect initially. Um, over time, what happens, and this is why you have a correlation of individuals who are on methadone um, who, who smoke crack or um, use methamphetamines is because uh, they've lost the ability to uh, get high because that methadone that uh, that's maintaining them on a daily basis isn't getting them high anymore. It's, it's merely uh, occupying their receptors so that um, and in a sufficient dose causing what's called narcotic blockade, which means that if they were to inject um, another substance uh, such as heroin, that it wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't feel it and that they wouldn't die from it. Um, this is uh, particularly important uh, um, component of buprenorphine, which has high very high uh, affinity for the mu opioid receptor. Meaning what? Meaning that it binds to the mu opioid receptor and the mu opioid receptor is the, um, is the receptor which is associated with the pain relief and euphoria um, that you take, uh, that, you, that you feel, sorry, when you take opioids. 
And so, um, uh, where was it? Uh, buprenorphine um, will block the effects of uh, Dilaudid, hydromorphone, heroin, um, you know, uh, and the you know the whole gamut. Um, it is uh, almost impossible to displace from the receptor, uh, and that is one of its benefits. And so that's why you see. Um, you know, um, the, uh, I, I, I don't want to say advertisement, but, uh, pushing from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, from, uh, SAMHSA, um, th uh, to put patients, you know, chronic relapsing opioid addicts on to, um, Suboxone or Subutex or, you know, uh, there's so many different formulations now. Um, the reason is that if they relapse, nothing happens. The heroin bounces off the receptor site. And so even though it has such a, a, a tight, it's, it's so tightly bound to the mu opioid receptor, it has a low, low intrinsic, uh, activity, meaning that, yes, it binds the receptor, but it doesn't activate it to the extent that a full mu opioid receptor opiate would, such as heroin, morphine, fentanyl, uh, on and on and on and on and on. And as such, it has a ceiling effect. And so, you know, um, with buprenorphine, um, once you reach that ceiling effect, um, that ceiling dosage, no matter how much more you add, you're not going to get any additional euphoria from it. And that's, again, one of the benefits from um, buprenorphine. Um, and that's why it's it's recommended uh, in you know so widely. Okay, so question for you: so average person, let's say that goes to a methadone clinic for <clears throat> to be on methadone, right? Or the average person is is maybe I'm wrong. Between forty to eighty milligrams is what they are on, correct? Well, they're 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 supposed to be started on. 30 milligrams and then given monitored for an hour or two and then given 10 milligrams after. Okay. So which would and be, which would be 40, 40 milligrams day one, day one. And so can you please break down a little bit your knowledge of the, the purpose of a methadone clinic and what is the goal? Is the person supposed to go to the clinic starting off with the 30 and 10 on day one to try to minimize it and bring, obviously, for those that don't know, methadone is, the purpose of methadone is to get off of opiates, correct? Right. Okay. Well, it's it's a harm reduction. Harm reduction. Right. Harm reduction because if a person remains on various opiates, such as heroin, right, they have the potential of dying because they could overdose. And spreading uh, HIV by sharing needles. Um, there's other diseases that are associated with heroin abuse, such as endocarditis, um, abscesses, hepatitis, hepatitis, and so um, the purpose of having that indi uh, that individual on um, uh, methadone. Uh, and 40 mil and starting them on 40 and eventually taking them up is in order to get what's called a narcotic blockade dose, you need to have them on an average of 120 milligrams of methadone of methadone. So the point of going to a methadone clinic is to start from 30 and 10 on day one and work your way up to higher doses. And work your way up to a higher dose. Okay. And what is the purpose of, of working your way up to a higher dose? 
is that when you reach the narcotic blockade stage, which is which is um, reached only at a higher dose, then those the benefits which he just listed, such as um, you know heroin no longer working, so you know there's no the person's not going to want to shoot up heroin, for instance. Okay, so let's say a person is in the process of going to a methadone clinic and working their way up to the higher dosage of of, um, of methadone. Along the way, they decide they want to do heroin. Mm -hmm. Do they? Sometimes they do, right? Absolutely. And, okay, and when they them choose to remain at a low dose so that they can continue to use heroin. So they can be at a low dose and continue to use heroin. Right. Okay. And and so the ones that are serious and really want to get off will go through the process of starting off at a low dose, work their way up to the 120 milligrams that you spoke of. Then what's the goal? At that point, where they're in hopes then, of... Then, so the, the hope... Uh, there, we spoke of narcotic blockade and the, you know, and the practical applications. Um, also, you know, there's benefits to society as far as, you know, robbing, robberies and, and, and things like that. But you've also now engaged the individual in a, in, in a treatment model. Now, it's a harm reduction treatment model, but it's a treatment model nevertheless. And over time depending on the person's counselor and depending on the person, their goals and what they want for their, for their personal lives, um, they will either stay at 120 or begin to taper off the, the 120. But that occurs predominantly and, you know, if you look at the statistics of it, 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 it occurs, you know, let's say like a decade later. So the point of them being in this harm reduction phase of their lives, which could be up to a decade, is to be able to get to a certain dosage on the methadone. And over a period of time, the hope is within 10 years, but within a decade to right. be able to get to a point of zero, like nothing. Like zero or nothing if that's their goal. Again, these people or persons hypothetically, statistically, wouldn't be alive. So Because of why? Because they would have died from an overdose? or Because, because they would have died from an overdose, right. <laughs> Statistics say that they would have died from a heroin overdose, which unfortunately now is being mixed with fentanyl which is even, you know, uh, more insipid uh, because it, um, it is so potent. Um, and, um, you know, um, very few people have the tolerance uh, okay. to withstand that. And some of them, the goal is not to get completely off, but to remain on methadone maintenance for a long right. time. Right. Which is a form of medication-assisted treatment. Which is a form of medication-assisted treatment, right. Which falls in the category of harm reduction. And at least he's not out shooting heroin. Uh, he's in a safer place because he is maintaining. He's maintaining. He's not robbing stores. He's uh, not she. he or she. He's yeah. She's no longer engaged in illicit activities, um, hopefully is no longer associating with the same people that he or she was associating with before. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole, uh, you know, over time, a change of lifestyle. Um, and um, that's what you know, uh, in 19, I think, 67 or 69, the doctors, Dole and Nicewinder, who thought that addiction was a metabolic disease, um, came up with a methadone maintenance, um, and it originated in New York and was, um, you know, given the, um, 
the seal of approval by President Nixon and began to uh, to pop up. However, there were and are and continue to be, I mean, if we look at pre-Buper um, Norfman, there were significant barriers because you could only get methadone from federally licensed narcotic treatment program. Got it. And, um, and um, as I was discussing with um, one of your friends over over there, um, that could uh, be an, a, a huge impediment to the individual who's seeking uh, treatment for their disease, um, you know, have, because initially it's ha uh, you you go to the clinic on a daily basis. Over time, it 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 goes from uh, you know seven days to six days to five days to four days to three days, to two days. And then if, you know, if you're on it long enough, um, you can get 30 days at once, which, which you know, is, again, it, this evolved over time. Um, there was a time when if you were on 100 milligrams of methadone or more, this was, I think, in the 90s or late 80s. You weren't even um, allowed to have take-homes, and that's what those are called, uh, are take-homes. Interesting. Okay, so a couple of things. So when I was in rehab in 2007, yeah, I went in mainly for meth addiction at that point. I mean, everything else that came along with it, but meth was my demise and brought me to my knees. But when I was in there, and you know which rehab I went to, I... I was in there with a bunch of Armenian Persian guys, right? And and it was four of them, four five, four of them. Wow! They were all there for methadone addiction. Mm. They had all come in because they were in the two hundred seventy milligram uh, category. Oh. Um, yeah. Why would well, that happen? Well, um, uh, most. Uh, rehabs and or detox facilities won't even accept an individual unless they're on um, 40 milligrams um, or below. Okay. Um, as far as 270 milligrams per day, um, it is, an, you know, each individual is different. Um, that person may have been a rapid metabolizer. Mm -hmm. which occurs. Um, however, um, you know, uh, uh, though I've heard of high doses, I haven't heard of, of, of um, 270 milligrams per day. Um, most probably what that person was attempting to do was um, attempting to somehow get high off of the methadone i think the person was getting high off of it it was right. pretty much an addiction like that's yeah. what the majority of them came in for they weren't coming from they weren't active um patients of a methadone clinic they were methadone addicts they were uh, addicted to methadone i see i see i see yeah well also, you have to remember that all of these, med including buprenorphine, uh, was developed as a pain medication. Um, methadone was developed and utilized as a pain medication, is utilized as a pain medication, as is buprenorphine. And, um, you know, I, when I hurt, injured my leg, um, I was... Um, you know, offered uh, oxycodone and and um, very high potency mu opioid uh, receptor agonist drugs um, that cause 
high levels of euphoria. And because of my brother who passed away, um, I opted um, to um, take uh, something called Belbuca, which is um, 900 micrograms of um, buprenorphine, which is, which is less than one, one milligram. Hmm. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, I don't want to get too far into it. I know that your brother passed away. How long ago? My brother passed away in 2014. He, yeah, he overdosed once in 2010 and I, um, I had Narcan, um, and I was able to Narcan him and, um, uh, start CPR and the paramedics got there and they took him, uh, to Cedar Sinai and, you know, um, they thought that potentially his whole body was shutting down. So you were, you already had Narcan that's 12 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, um, I followed the, uh, opioid epidemic, um, you know, which was the modern opioid epidemic um, brought on by the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and Oxycontin, um, similar to what Bayer Pharmaceuticals did with heroin um, uh, in 1906 or seven. Um, the, uh, the Sackler family was able to do um, right. uh, was um wrote a paper on um um you know cutting people off uh, in other words setting restrictions without um solutions would result in individuals overdosing turning to the street and so um i was uh, very upset about um, how um, that the opioid epidemic played out and how um, it wasn't solution led. It was, um, you know, we need to get a handle on this from a legal standpoint. So Sackler, the Sackler family went on to be sued, correct? Sued, yes. So they, they were sued into bankruptcy um i i say that with a grain of salt because um the entire family will be multimillionaires for the rest of their lives and who were they sued by they were sued by um states individual states um and jurisdictions because of the cause of death for so many people that were becoming addicted through opioids that were Distributed through Big Pharma? No, because they knew that the drug was, uh, if not as addictive, more addictive, uh, and uh, had um, a, a chief medical officer come on and and say that if your patient is, you know, suffering increase their dose and um they uh they uh you know arthur sackler was um a star advertiser um and he um advertised the hell out of this drug and, but he falsely advertised it by saying that it was a safer um uh, opioid to prescribe than let's say MS cotton, which is morphine uh, continuous release, for instance. Um, what did your brother die from? My brother died from um, a fentanyl overdose. He a was fentanyl in 2010 was the first overdose, or was it something was, different? Was the first overdose. 2010 was fentanyl. Was it a patch, or was it a lollipop, it, or what was it? So he was seeing a pain management physician in Beverly Hills. Um, and 
um, was being prescribed uh, fentanyl patches that he would then open the back of and take the fentanyl gel and put it into his um, buckle membrane. So like how you would put like chewing tobacco. And he had gone to Betty Ford um, and um, left Betty Ford and went straight to the doctor and got a refill and um, used the amount, the same amount that he was using before he was detoxed. So he put it in his lip, on the inside of his lip? So, yeah, inside his gums. Um, and, uh, you know, it rap it's rapidly absorbed that way. Um, it's highly potent, but it needs to be administered continuously throughout the day because it has such a short half-life. It has, you know, uh, around an hour to three hours max half-life. Explain what a half-life means for those that don't know. Uh, half-life um, me is uh, the time it takes for a drug to be processed by your body. And so um, the generally speaking, drugs that have shorter half-lives are considered to be more addictive. Okay. Um, as far as him going and to Betty Ford but not staying and going back to his doctor and getting <clears throat> prescribed again and you saying him not being detoxed, no, what he, happened? He had been detoxed at Betty Ford, completed the program at Betty Ford, and then went back to his doctor. Okay, went back to his doctor. After, for, after. So he wasn't trying to stay sober. He wasn't trying to stay sober, no. The, was the reason that he went in the first place to Betty Ford was it because he overdosed and there was a fear of him losing his life, so he needs to go get cleaned up? Yes, he had overdosed in, um, like I said, in, in 2010. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that was the catalyst um, where, you know, and he agreed um, that he needed help, you know, and um, I, I remember going to and I was, you know, I I uh, look back upon um, my interaction with him um, and, uh, you know, I should have been more compassionate, um, but I was pissed off. Were like, you on were you on any opiates during that time? No, I wasn't. So 2010, 2014, brother overdoses once uh in 2010 and then 2014 he overdoses and passes away. Right. And you're the one that found him. Yeah. That's right. Um so I So you found him the first time in Narcandum and found him the second time? And then No. Narcandum and um, and then drag him to the floor so I could start CPR because he's doing a hard surface. And he was in rigor. And so um, there was, you know, uh, I, I had to uh, call the coroner at that point, not the ambulance. Because you knew he was no longer. He had passed. And there he was unresponsive. Right. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um you weren't yet living in New York for medical school yet, were you? Um, no, I wasn't. I left that year. Okay, so you went to New York. What happened that you developed a dependency upon anything? What What did you become I, dependent upon? I I developed a dependency um, primarily on. Um, Methadone, I, w I would say, um, and uh, in my mind, I thought that as long as I stay at a low dose of methadone, um, that I would be fine. But why, but why methadone? Were you getting on methadone to use it recreationally, or were no, you using no. it to overcome another opiate addiction? No, to, to use it so that um, you know, I, I wouldn't have to, um, because I was taking Percodan at the time, um, mm -hmm. and, um, 
you know, I was moving to a new city, which, you know, w that I didn't have, didn't know anyone. And okay. so um, I ended up uh, using methadone for that. So um, when you say you were on a low dosage, what was it? The 20, the, the 30 and 10? The, the 40 milligrams. 40 milligrams a day. Right. Was it in liquid form or how would you take it? Um, I was, because I was going to school, um, I would be given uh, monthly supplies in tablet form. Okay. So. Um, from a doctor, it, from a prescri prescribed from, doctor. Yeah, from a, pres from a prescri prescribing physician. And, um, you and know. Then, then you were. Something happened. Your your sister passed away. Were you out in California when she passed away from cancer? My no no. My sister had um, in two thousand and ten had been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. Okay. And um, you know, uh, I felt that you know uh, because um, uh, I just felt that things weren't going well with her. I, I had a very close relationship with my sister. She was like my mother. And um, and so I uh, felt obligated, um, uh, or uh, let me re restate that. I, I, you know, I felt honored to be by her side um, while she, you know, while she, um, passed away and while she died and while she was dying. And, um, you know, it's a journey that we're all going to take at some point. Um, but I vowed at that, uh, at that moment that I would do, um, positive things and, um, br bring about positive change in the world, um, in her name and um and and um for her if that makes sense it makes a lot of sense and you have done that and i've watched you do it and i watched uh you know i watched your brother do the same i wanted to um your other brother i wanted to talk about <clears throat> your knowledge base of buprenorphine what was it originally created for um I was uh, forced to take the class to get my X waiver. Okay. Um, because I was going to be a buprenorphine prescriber. Okay. And so um, I took the class and I read the book um, and passed the test and uh, didn't have a DEA number yet, but I remember getting a call from the DEA um, the instructor had submitted uh, my name uh, somehow uh, attempting to get me an X number. I said, and I said, no, I'm a medical student. I, I'm not. I don't have a DEA number yet. I'm not registered with you guys. So that's that's how um, um, buprenorphine all. Uh, my knowledge of buprenorphine came about. Actually, it was um, significantly before then um, uh, because we learned about it. I remember I learned about it as an undergraduate, and that was what um, was going to be the golden standard. I, I think doctors physicians and anyone in the, you know, addiction field, healthcare field was looking forward to this medication that would allow them to prescribe it uh, at any doctor's office like any other patient and not have to put the person through a battery of tests. And so it was going to be something that could be a substitute or a replacement for long-term methadone dependency correct right okay so when before i got sober which was 2007 as i had mentioned 
mm-hmm. meth had brought me to my knees. And I was also working somewhere <clears throat> with a gentleman who was a good friend, actually, who had a heroin dependency for a long time, but had gone on suboxone maintenance on buprenorphine. Okay. Mm-hmm. When I knew him, he had this personal struggle of not really feeling like a whole human being. I didn't know that he was already on Suboxone maintenance for 10 years. Oh, wow. And this is in 2007. Oh, right? yeah. So, or what I think during that time, it was he was like on his sixth year, but we stayed in contact throughout my recovery. So after I got sober, he ended up going a full 10 years. And finally, he told me that the day that he finally got off of Suboxone was the day that he had the ability and the opportunity to really, really try to find his innermost self, who he wanted to be. He wasn't a 12-step guy. He wasn't um, in AA or anything like that. He was he he basically he was just happy to be off of buprenorphine. Now, we don't have a lot of time left, but and I really love these conversations with you because you're just such a wealth of knowledge. But I want to ask you, when it comes to harm reduction, um, just as much as somebody that is stuck or staying on methadone for long periods of time. Do you believe that people should be on buprenorphine for long, long periods of time? Or is there, should there be a goal that's being put put into place and made for people that are encouraged by their doctors to stay on long-term maintenance to eventually get off and, and uh, live an abstinent life. And I think that's a, that's a fair question. I think that's a, um, a, an individualized um, um, thing that should be really, uh, you know, discussed with one physician and a treatment plan developed and put into place um, for. You know, a lot of physicians want their clients to remain. on right. long-term- because they're getting their they're getting guidance from NIDA, a National Institute of Drug Abuse and and uh, SAMHSA, and, and the National Institute of Health to keep these individuals, uh, um, uh, IV injecting heroin addicts and or former IV injecting heroin addicts on um, on these medications because ultimately it's. Uh, it's uh, it's saving their lives. I mean, if my brother had been and I uh, had been on um, buprenorphine, he would be here right now. Now he may not have been a hundred percent there mentally, and that's something that he could have worked on. But at least he would have had the opportunity to work on it. Fair. I I find that statement fair. But this is what I wanted to have you on here because, first of all, we're such dear friends. And because I know of your own personal experience with opiates, methadone. Right. Did you do Suboxone, too, for a while? Well, I'm on um, 900 micrograms of Suboxone for pain. Okay. So, and buprenorphine's first original purpose was to pain. be for pain. Yeah. Pain that's, relief. But then it was later used, um, you know, later on down the line for for overcoming uh, opiate addiction. That's right. Right. So, do you think that, um, let's say somebody wasn't an IV user. They smoked fentanyl or they smoked heroin, Mm -hmm. they're 23 years old. They are going to a treatment center, which is, which provides medication assistant treatment as well as abstinence. It's your choice. Mm -hmm. The individual. Do you think this person should be encouraged to stay on buprenorphine for long, long periods of time? I think the individual should be encouraged to stay on buprenorphine for a period of time long enough to where they're so the the people they interact with have changed 
their um, kind of mindset maybe has changed. Uh, goals have been introduced into their lives. Um, and and then at that point, maybe encouraged to, to come down to, to a dose. I, I mean, uh, it, it, it's a very dangerous question that you're asking. Um, and I say that because uh, literally um, you're talking about an individual's life. Right. So there are people that obviously if they have got the fentanyl bug and they've tasted that and they've right. done it and they know how captivating it is to just bring them in and, you know, quickly detox them, get them leveled out to complete abstinence. There's a chance that they may get the idea that they overshot the mark and maybe they should go out and try a little bit more. But if they're right. on... If they're on maintenance, then uh, it'll hopefully prevent them from right. going out and getting out. Now, I just read um, because I, I'm writing uh, grants now um, for a, um, a treatment facility, and um, SAMHSA, uh, the statement in the grant, and it was for opioid use, um, said, We do not believe that. Um, mere detoxification from opioids is um, uh, the uh, leading or latest uh, model in care of an opioid addict. We believe that it is placing that individual on medication assisted treatment. So you have. Um, the government saying one thing, you have data here. I mean, you know, Pej, um, in, in the rooms, how many come and actually stay. Right. And how many are lost. Um, and um, and I, I don't want um, to take that. I mean, I guess uh, at some point I will be... Um, sitting across the table from someone and having this discussion with them. But uh, I don't want to presume to know um, what's going on uh, in the mind of an individual. Um, and if they're being pressured, if they're being forced. And, you know, if they need, if they need that support, um, I say, why not? Right. You know, um, uh, I, I personally, for instance, uh, I'm on it for pain reasons. You're on it for legitimate pain. Yes. I'm on it for legitimate, legitimate pain and cool. will be on it for, um, I would say the next couple months or so. I, I that you had, a, you had a car accident, correct? Yeah, I had a car accident, fractured my pelvis, dislocated my thigh bone, um, and all of that had to be kind of put back into place. Um, I was in a wheelchair and then a walker, and then now I'm, I'm doing a lot of physical therapy, uh, which is painful in and of itself. Um, but um, I, uh, for a person like me, um, I don't believe, like for instance, if I had the option to be on buprenorphine or methadone for the rest of my life, I wouldn't choose to be. Um, but that's me. And uh, that's someone who um, wants to practice medicine. So I, I, I mean, I, I, I think, um, I, I don't think there's a straightforward response. I, I, I do favor buprenorphine over methadone. Um, and I say that only because um, methadone really bathes the brain in um, uh, uh, and, and, you know, and fully uh, activates those receptors, um, whereas buprenorphine uh, doesn't. 
Um, so I do favor buprenorphine over methadone. Um, but uh, that being said, I really believe it's an individual choice. And it can be something that a person can use for uh, six months, a year, two years, three years, and then move on. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Very good. I'm very, very happy that we talked about all of this. Absolutely. I want you to know something. Yes. Before we close out. Yes. I, they're probably not even watching this, but sometimes you never know. There are people that snoop over here to see what we're talking about, especially when it's a, a subject like this. But I've received a lot of flack and heat from certain people that represent the harm reduction community because they think that my ideologies are misinformative. They uh, are a misinformed people that I don't know what I'm talking about, that just because I was raised in a certain type of recovery process that I need to be more open-minded to people that are on methadone or that are on Suboxone. And if they say that they're in recovery, that they are in recovery. And truth of the matter is, my personal opinion uh, is, is that anybody that says that they're in recovery, they're in recovery. Right. I'm, who am I? I'm not the end-all, be-all recovery god that can tell them that you are or aren't. Right. Um, the problem I think that a lot of people run into when it comes to the 12-step world is some say that there are certain receptors in the brain that if you are not completely abstinent, you will not or may not have the ability to have a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening because of the blockage that, uh, let's say, for example, somebody that's on Suboxone maintenance would have. However, I do, you know, that's, that is what I've been taught. That is what I've been told. And I've also attempted to take someone through the process of the steps, uh, not knowing that they were on buprenorphine until they told me halfway through and then later seeing that. And I'm not saying just because they didn't end up staying on the course of the 12 steps that um, they weren't in recovery or that they they didn't take recovery. I saw their life go in a whole different direction, which later on they they ended up having to seek other forms of treatment in order to help themselves for their dependency because their dependency went in a lot of different directions. However, I do have friends that are in the 12-step world. Some of them are members of Heroin Anonymous or HA that will take people through the steps on a Suboxone. Uh, so I'm not one to – I used to have one idea about it all. Now I want to keep an open mind about it. I do get a lot of people that you know try to stitch me or talk – to they take my videos on TikTok and and basically will cut out a portion of something I'm saying and yeah. come, come back and go at me. And right. you know, there's one individual in particular that does this a lot, which he's got a very strong personality. I've I wish to God I could have him on on this podcast just to hear his outlook because I'm always open to hearing people's outlooks. But um, he loves to. Uh, to stitch my stuff and say how misinformed I am that I don't know what I'm talking about because he's so uh, experienced and well-versed in and active in the harm reduction community. But, mm -hmm. uh, but again, you know, when I, when I say what I say, I say based off of what I know, what I experienced, what I've learned, what I've seen people be on buprenorphine, but because there's, they still have the addict mind, they think, okay, I can't do opiates right now, but while I'm on this heroin, I mean, sorry, meth still works. Cocaine right. still works, right? right? Other drugs still work. Alcohol even works to a certain extent. But right. uh, but so I I appreciate you and your openness and coming here today and your transparency and talking about the passing of your brother and talking mm -hmm. about the passing of your sister and how much you have dedicated yourself to represent her in her name on uh, helping people because she was a, she helped a lot of people. And then on top of that, just talking about yourself. And, and when, when a question is asked, you don't necessarily have to give a direct answer, but you, and you didn't dance around it. You were very, very open about what you, you felt like you basically right. said, like, this is an, on an individual basis, an individual gets to make their own choice. Me personally, I, I very much agree with you on that, but I also really, really hope that each individual human being that has a dependency on any type of a substance will come to a point in their life where if their soul is speaking to them and saying, please, let's do something different. I don't feel good. I have a soul sickness. 
um, they open their mind to to hopefully getting onto a path of self-discovery. Absolutely. Of self-realization, of really truly finding self and finding who they really are. Did, were they put on this earth to be dependent upon various drugs just because they come from a poppy plant? Because a lot of people will say, well, it's natural. It comes from a poppy plant. Or weed is natural because it comes from a plant. Yeah. At the end of the day, everything comes from a plant. No, no. <laughs> like, everything everything yeah. Yeah. comes from the soil or from something that it was grown through, even if right. it was developed and synthesized in, in a lab. But, you know, I I appreciate your openness. I appreciate you being you. And Thank I knew you. and I knew in our conversation in Westwood when we were on top of that building talking, I thought, he needs to be on this podcast. Let's talk about Thank recovery you. Through, Thank through, through your lens. For having me, and I appreciate you. Um, I appreciate you keeping an open mind um, and, uh, you know, it's important because we're dealing with with, uh, people's lives. That's right. We are. So I respect that very much. Yeah. I love you very much. Thank you to all that tuned in today. Thank you, Joe, for coming on. I want to see you soon. We'll go for a walk with the dogs. Absolutely. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. Bye.